so many early Christian images also bear the narratives of women and certain women in particular. Of course, Mary being chief among them, and she's a big focus of my scholarship, at least my early scholarship. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Catherine Gines Taylor, the Hugh W. Nibley Postdoctoral Fellow at the Maxwell Institute at Brigham Young University. Catherine, thank you for coming in today. I'm so happy to be here with you, Steve. Thanks for asking Well, we are going to talk about things you have spent a great deal of your life exploring, including literally exploring into catacombs and sarcophagi, all the rest. Even as a graduate student here at BYU and even as an undergrad, I was always very much connected to the idea of doing fieldwork, seeing things in person, art, objects, images. It makes all the difference. You also got your PhD at the University of Manchester, which put you in a position, I think, to see a lot more artifacts than exist here in the States. Yes, naturally, I was able to tack on weeks of field work while studying at the University of Manchester, where I worked with Dr. Emma Loosley as my supervisor, and Dr. Kate Cooper, Dr. Roger Ling, etc. I feel really fortunate to have had that experience. You have focused on tracing representations of female devotional and biblical figures all the way from late Christianity into the early medieval world. I want to start by asking, before we dive into the Annunciation and Mary, what drew you to study those figures? There aren't many of them compared with the number of male names in those scriptures. Right. And interestingly enough, what you find in the material culture, in the world of objects and image, would maybe contradict some of those ideas because so many early Christian images also bear the narratives of women and certain women in particular. Of course, Mary being chief among them, and she's a big focus of my scholarship, at least my early scholarship. Let me go back to beginnings of your faith. What do you first remember about how you were taught belief, or were you? I was. I grew up in the booming metropolis of Provo, Utah, and I grew up in a home of very faithful Latter-day Saint parents. I come from a relatively large family. We were six. I was the eldest. I am the eldest, and I have five younger brothers. We were a pretty typical, I suppose, Latter-day Saint family. Some of my earliest memories of faith and belief really come from a a very interior space. You know, I went to church on a regular basis, but my feelings about God and about Jesus and about our divine nature, I recall being really clued into those feelings from a very young age, even being alone in nature or taking time to contemplate. I don't know. I think I was a bit of a contemplative child. I would write poetry at a very young age. And I remember just having stirrings of what I would refer to as the Holy Spirit within me, identifying for my cognizant mind 
my connection to God and of my divine nature. So that was a given as you grew up. It's something you had connected to already as a as a young person. Yes. So, you know, these things were taught to me in a more formalized or codified way. But I think my life of faith and connecting that to the life of the mind as a whole soul really I, I want to say it was almost intuitive, really. That's the best word that I can come up with. Mm. I love a description you give. Uh, I may even have you quote yourself here, if you don't mind, about being a combination of a disciple and a scholar. For me, the authentic call and commission of an intellectual life has never existed apart from the distillation of the Holy Spirit upon my soul. The temporal responsibilities of the disciple-scholar incorporate the long view of time while also savoring the everyday details of the present moment. I feel fortunate to work in community with other faithful saints and pilgrims at the Maxwell Institute and to have the balanced luxury of contemplative research and communal conversation. In all its richness, disciple-scholarship also comes at a cost— For to know wisdom is to also wrestle with its oppositions. The best I can hope for in this faithful life of the mind is to encounter love, to behold and connect with awfulness and mystery and the presence of God in this body, heart, and mind as his creature. To be this kind of disciple-scholar for me is to be faithful in Jesus, who, quote, sustains all things by his powerful word, end quote with a clear hope that the Lord lifts up his countenance upon me and gives me an understanding peace and a work to do. I think that's beautifully described, and thank you for being willing to read your own words. <laughs> the stereotype is that believers go into scholarship and the more deeply they study, the less faithful they end up being. Have you found that actually to be a true thing or not true? I think, you know, for some people that might be the case— For me, though, every day that I have the opportunity to delve into the world of early Christians, into, honestly, the silenced world of women in that time period, I see that opportunity as a gift. As a matter of fact, I start every day with the thought and prayer in my heart that I, and the expectation really, that I will be shown the things that I need to look at and think about in an objective manner. But also, my life of faith is not separate at all from my life of devoted scholarship. That said, I do look objectively at art and image and text and all of the contexts of the early Christian world, but I do so with an eye of faith, and I am more than happy to say that I do that. I'm holding, would you call this your thesis, or this book is developed from your thesis? Right. My book that I published with Brill is a monograph that is a distillation of my PhD dissertation, kind of an academic look at the Annunciation to Mary in the earliest imagery and textual heritage. Which is, to me, has been fascinating to look through this. The exact title is Late Antique Images of the Virgin Annunciate Spinning, Allotting the Scarlet and the Purple. I think all of that will become clear as we talk for just a minute. When we think of the Christmas story, of course, it almost always begins with there was a virgin and an angel appeared to her. 
I'm excited to maybe even not really go beyond that very far today, but to focus on Mary and, as you mentioned, clues that we get in objects rather than text. What caught your eye in the images that you thought, this is a thing I can study and needs to be collected and analyzed? This is a great story. This all began really here at Brigham Young University as I was moving from an undergrad into graduate studies. I studied art history here under uh, Professor Mark Johnson. I was looking for thesis topic, and I remember just sitting myself down in the stacks of the library and opening up catalogs of Byzantine art. And this Annunciation image kept coming through. I kept seeing all of these mosaics and other even smaller domestic type objects that bore this iconography or this symbolism. It struck me as kind of strange because there were elements, there were attributes of this image that I had not previously recognized. Things that were showing up over and over. Right, that were not familiar to me from Luke chapter one, for example, And I thought, what is going on here? Mary was holding a spindle and a distaff, the tools for spinning out thread. And she would often have a wool basket at her feet. And I could not take my attention away from that. It caught my attention and I wanted to know more. And so how do you find out? How do you dig back and say, why is she spinning in all of these paintings and mosaics? Yes. You know, One of the most common ways to study early Christianity is through texts. They're written by people. They're the product of people. But I think it's also necessary to study the material culture, the art, the symbolism that is produced by these same people. And so I tried to bring both of those two things into synchronicity. And I started by looking at infancy narratives. And the one that really helped open the world of the Annunciation for me was the second century Protovangelium of James. It's an apocryphal text that we really should know a little bit more about. For early Greek-speaking Christians, it helped explain and even harmonize a lot of the early infancy accounts. One of the most stunning pieces of this was the account of the Annunciation where Mary is spinning. And not just spinning because somebody needs a shirt. That's right. So the account talks about how Mary is a dedicated virgin to the temple, and there comes a point in time when she must leave the temple at puberty, and then the priests of the temple are in need of a new veil for the temple. And so they call the virgins back to the temple, and they they give out an allotment of the different colored thread that needs to be spun for the veil, and the allotment of the scarlet and the purple fall to Mary. Which are the royal colors. The royal colors. On the one hand, you have the purple royal color, that Davidic line. And on the other hand, you have red, which is this color of blood, the sacrificial color of life, really, that is given to all of Israel as a sacrifice is made always on the altar 
and then, of course, comes to represent the ultimate Lamb of God in Jesus, who gives life. So you've got both the priestly and the kingly colors there given to Mary. And so that starts to explain these images you're saying. Why is she always spinning in these Annunciation images? Yes, and it opened up the world. But then I started looking a little bit deeper, and I found that there are two kinds of images. The earliest images are the ones that are most dear to my heart because they are often found on small domestic-type objects, things like marriage rings or ivory pixis jars that would have been used for ointment or cosmetics, even on textiles. Objects that in a lot of ways were simple and maybe used within regular households. There are some other objects that are more of an elite nature, more of a luxury kind of object, gold jewelry, for example, or very large sarcophagi. But it really underscored to my mind the impact of this image for not just those who acquired or maybe commissioned these objects and used them, but also for viewers who would have seen them and understood this task that was really prevalent throughout the ancient world. You know, people didn't just go to a department store and buy their clothing. You started with fiber and you worked through an entire process to create cloth. And so what would this mean for an ordinary matronly woman, for example, who used a spindle and distaff on a regular basis to also see the symbol of matronly virtue writ large taken up by Mary, the Theotokos, the mother of God, the mother of Jesus. I saw a parallel that you point out in your book, which is one of the the early writers saying that it was Mary herself who wove a garment for the Spirit of God. Yes. In Jesus, which I thought was an amazing parallel. Right. And honestly, I think that we we could take a closer look at this and think about how the flesh and blood of Jesus, of course, his father being God the Father and his mother, this mortal woman, Mary. So his flesh and blood by which he accomplishes miracles and all sacrifice, as well as all relationship and love, and by which he is able to die and then also resurrect, is her flesh and blood. Hmm. And you go all the way back to Exodus. It says that there were certain men and women whose hearts were made willing to come and work on making the tabernacle, this very same spinning and weaving, all of this. Yes, spinning specifically is a female task. Whereas men could be weavers, the spindle is only ever taken up by women and wise-hearted women. And that comes from a very long trajectory of precedence where you find, even before Christianity, you find the spindle associated with creation and, for example, the three fates, you know, Mm. this kind of almost pagan imagery where there are women who spin out the length of one's life, who determine its length and then and then cut it off. And these three fates, of course, are the daughters of of another goddess, Anonke, who is the the consort to Kronos or 
time. So, and she spins out with her spindle whirls the planets, you know, in this mythological circumstance, so that you have this junction of time and space with this male-female beautiful junction. So this is the spindle and distaff were a symbol, a legitimate symbol of matronly excellence, of virtue. And when I say virtue, I don't just mean chaste behavior, but the the full capability of a woman as a mater familias to be able to provide in a household. And one of my favorite verses, again, out of Proverbs 31, is where in verse 31, it talks about this woman who's obviously taken up a spindle and distaff, a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. So this image was a common image within the ancient Roman world. And in a lot of ways, it helped, I think, also legitimize early Christianity and women within early Christianity. Yeah, I think this moment is worth lingering over. I think it gives us a really rich view into who Mary is, if for no other reason than just following the Annunciation, we also have the visitation. And in the visitation, when Mary goes to visit and stay with her cousin Elizabeth, and they recognize in each other these children who have been promised to come, Mary sings the most beautiful text of the Magnificat, where she takes, she recognizes how God works in the world, and he sometimes tips things on their head. And I love that phrase, you know, behold the handmaid of the Lord, where she is, I don't want to say that she's ordinary, because I don't believe that she is, but where socially women were not going to be, you know, kind of the movers and shakers in political movements or changing the world in the ancient kind of context. But here, God is working with Mary to bring about, I think, in Jesus, the salvation of all mankind. Honestly, I think the Annunciation is, it's that moment of incarnation that makes all the difference. It's the very crux of salvation when she says, let it be unto me, when she takes that consent and she takes that upon herself. I think that's incredible. Interesting. You use the Greek term theotokos? Yes, theotokos. Theotokos, which talks about the carrier or the bearer of God. And in one sense, you might think, well, that's almost like thinking of Mary as an object. Like, uh, we, yes, we venerate her because of her association with this other very important, the important person. But what you've been talking about and the imagery you're finding says so much more about who she is. Yes, I see Mary as more than just a vessel. I see her in the Annunciation as a woman who is comprehending the economy of salvation I see her as a woman who is going to ultimately give consent for this to happen, which is a very empowered stance. Mm. And I see Mary as crucial, honestly, in the plan of salvation. Without a body, without that relationship of mother and child, 
the rest really fails to be accomplished. You've pointed out that some of these images are so early, like the second century. Just the name of this was so fascinating to me. Will you tell this story of visiting with the nuns of the catacombs of Priscilla? Yes. That sounds like it Uh. should be a movie or something. (laughs) (laughs) So out the Via Salaria in Rome, in a neighborhood, is where the Priscilla catacombs are housed. And the Priscilla catacombs were built multiple kilometers underground. They were property given by a woman, Priscilla, for the burial of Christians. I went to the catacombs one day as a doctoral student, and I was fairly naive thinking that I would be able to see this particular image, the image of the Annunciation that's in a private, probably a private cubiculum or room where a family could be interred. I went on the tour and I had not seen what I came to see. And so (laughs) I asked the nuns who only spoke Italian and the guides at the front desk. And I was, I think I probably looked a little bit um, desperate perhaps that day. (laughs) You know, the nuns scolded me and, and said, you know, this is highly irregular. You really need to have permission from the Vatican to be able to go into see this particular image or, you know, go about off of our typical tour. And the guide said, well, let me let me see if I can have a conversation. And I stood in the corner and I don't think I've prayed harder, (laughs) (laughs) at least within a scholarly or academic setting for hearts to be softened than I did that day. And the guide came over and she said, you know, this is highly irregular. However, one of the nuns needs to go back into the catacomb to retrieve some of the vessels that were used for an earlier mass. And so she would be happy to take you just as long as you don't do this next time. Since then, of course, I have been able to work with the Pontifical Commission for Sacred Archaeology in a more formalized way. But it was really one of the highlights of my life to walk down through these ancient corridors and enter into this room which was fairly short. I'm I'm tall, I'm about 5'9", and I had to duck down and to look up in the center of the room and see this early annunciation where Gabriel looks almost like a Roman senator and Mary is seated on this high-backed throne and and to really feel a kind of communion with our ancient Christian brothers and sisters. And the image, which you have in your book, we do see Mary with her hair up and in Roman robes, which was so intriguing to me to think in a whole different way of how they pictured her because that's how they dressed. Yes. And yet, even though she's on this throne, what's she doing? Well, I've looked and and I've looked pretty carefully and and although I wouldn't be willing to stake my academic career on it, there there seems to be a purple robe that uh, is across her lap and this this appears to be again that robe of wool that she's going to be taking up to spin. I could just feel your excitement by the way when you tell about that. I felt like I was there praying to get in to see what I had come so far to see. Are people surprised when you start sharing this with them, what you've learned and the commonality from all of these pieces of art? 
even not art, but regular objects. I think that people are often surprised to to understand the richness that comes from the text, that comes from these objects and images. Because they are a little bit removed from us, and sometimes I think we tend to look at the past in a in an almost theoretical way. And what I love about the text and the object and the image is that it brings that history to life. We get to see and understand Mary as a real person, Jesus as an individual born into a particular time, and then also see the. The evidences of these things relevant to our own time, and that we can find them both intellectually, historically, as well as faithfully, also then again present for us today. And we see in some of the writings that the absence of the stories of women was often a decision of the particular writers that it wasn't so important, and so suddenly to have this come to life from the objects that tell their own story. Aside from whoever decided to write whatever, is very stirring. Material culture, I think, always reveals it reveals a less formal agenda from the text. Oftentimes, we'll find women represented in ways that are really beautiful and that give us a glimpse into maybe, per, well, perhaps, the way that they were viewed and understood within their own time period. I also read a lot of quote quote heretical texts, <laughs> and and you know the commonality, the co- one common thread, is that women feature prominently in them, and it makes you wonder. It makes you think about what gets excised apart from or separated out from so called orthodoxy relatively early on.、Mm. Yeah, so interesting. And then in medieval times, it seems that this idea of spinning became a way for women to connect. Yes, I think that that's the case, particularly early on. By the time you we get to about the fifth century, and we start having early church councils, ecumenical councils like the Council at Ephesus and then the Council at Chalcedon, we find that Mary, in particular, she's separated out a little bit from the common ordinary women. She becomes a kind of queen of heaven type, which in A lot of ways is beautiful because here we find a tradition where Mary is revered on this high plane, but what that does is it tends to almost pedestalize her、mm. and take her away from common ordinary experience. And so you'll often see the later we move into the Byzantine or early medieval examples where the same iconography shows up. You'll start to see it in mosaics in churches or frescoes in churches. So she is claimed outside of the kind of matronly world. She becomes, of course, queen of heaven, ever virgin, and that really separates her, I believe, in a lot of ways from the natural, real experience of of women. Christian believers who usually have pretty typical family life. When you, for instance, read the New Testament or contemporary works with that, it must seem richer because of your studies. Yes, it does. I think that we are impoverished if we're not looking 
at, I think, the archaeological, the art historical, the material world of the past. And the text also informs me in new and exciting ways. I think we need to read carefully. And sometimes when it comes to women, we have to read between the lines a little bit. We need to recognize what's not there and go digging. There are many scholars of New Testament texts and scholars who work beyond where I am as an art historian who also help inform my view. And as a matter of fact, I find that when when we do our due diligence to read our scriptures as well as to look contextually at the world of early Christianity, we are richer for that experience. I'm thinking of a visit I paid in the last year to the site of Magdala on the Sea of Galilee, where Mary Magdalene is said to have come from. And of course, from the little we see, and sometimes it's not clear who the woman is, but sometimes people have assumed it was it was her, we don't get a real great picture of her, her past. And yet, when you see the type of town that it was and that she had her own means, it gives us a whole other idea of who this one of the chiefest disciples was. Yes, and I just want to make very clear that the association of Mary and with a tawdry past is actually a construct that comes out of Pope Gregory, honestly. And, and I think that, again, careful scholarship can help push away some of those biases and those ideas. I am also quite fond of Mary Magdalene, who was not a prostitute. As a matter of fact, we need to understand what it means when the scriptures say that seven demons were cast out of her. What does that actually mean? We can find interpretations of that, again, in early Christian texts. We just need to look a little bit closer and also consider, for example, the Gospel of Mary or the Gospel of Philip or the Gospel of Thomas. I think that there are things to be learned, and I I would love to go to Magdala. I have not been to the Holy Land. It's a real, it's a, something that I wish and hope for in my future. And I think that there's a lot to to still even be learned from scholarship that we have today. So you knew as a child, or made the connection that there was God. There was something that you felt. So in the journey of a lifetime up till now. How are you different? How have your beliefs changed or solidified? You know, some of those same feelings, those same markers of what I would call spiritual enlightenment are the same. As a matter of fact, those are clear indications that I know that God is speaking to me or working in me. However, from my perspective now, I can look back and I it gives me a lot of hope and it also imbues me with a lot of wonder to see the ways that God has worked in me and in my scholarship, the opportunities that I feel have been allotted to me as well as the work that I've been willing to do. I really see my spiritual life, my intellectual life, my life as a disciple scholar as a vocational duty, as a vocational calling. And I don't think that that diminishes my scholarship in any way. As a matter of fact, I'm grateful for an integration of both. Can I just say one other thing? When you were asking me about my journey and before, I think this is an important thing maybe for our, for women 
to hear women of faith, but also women in our community. I took an, about an eight-year hiatus in between a master's degree and my PhD. I was working part-time. I was working in Washington, D.C. I was always teaching art history courses, and I, had, I got married, and I had three children. And my youngest was one, and I had applied to the University of Manchester for a PhD. And I had not heard from them. This was always something that was a goal for me. This was something that I cared deeply about. It was completing my education to that level was an integral part of who I am. It's, it's like being a mother to me. It's like being a wife to me. It's like being a whole person to me. And I remember I was standing in my kitchen and I was washing dishes and I had not heard about this application. And there was a BYU devotional or something like that on in the background on the TV in our kitchen. And it was part of the talk by Gordon B. Hinckley. And it was called Seek Learning. And he was talking in this very moment about how education helps us fulfill our potential. Or he said, you have the potential to become anything that you set your mind to. And he encouraged women particularly to get all of the education that they possibly could and to make your way into what he calls the most wonderful future of which you are capable. And he talked about making sacrifice in order to be able to do that. I remember stopping my task, drying my hands, walking into the other room. It was fairly early in the morning, but it would be kind of near the end of the day in England. And I called up the University of Manchester and I reached Emma Loosely, whom I had applied to study with. I asked her about my application and she said, Catherine, I can't believe that you called me right now. There's been a mix-up and part of your application or your paperwork was misplaced and we didn't really know how to get a hold of you. I said, well, I'm here and I really would like to begin this program in January. And she said, I really want to work with you. And that began about a five and a half year program in which I have to, I just really, I love British scholars and I loved my experience there. And it really brought these things to fruition with a credential that I could then put forward and act upon as a faithful Latter-day Saint woman working in the academy. I really count that as a, I count that as a moment of inspiration. And I'll always be grateful for having listened to that voice of a prophet and of the Spirit. Dr. Catherine Gines Taylor holds graduate degrees from the University of Manchester and Brigham Young University and, as we've learned, is also a dedicated disciple scholar. Catherine, thank you for speaking with me today in good faith. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. That's our time for today. Thank you to Dr. Katherine Gines-Taylor for generously sharing her stories and her faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Email us at ingoodfaith@byu.edu. Our Twitter is at ingoodfaithbyu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. 
I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here in Good Faith.